morning, good morning, good morning. Good to be with you all here. Um, I love your community. I've known your community for a long time. In fact, I go way back with Jared and Jeannie, probably 20 years or more. In fact, uh, Jared and I kind of became on the developmental path of becoming ministers at the same time. We worked at the same 20-something ministry at our church. And so Jared's not an easy guy to be compared to when you're up and coming. He's so funny. He's such a good communicator, right? I mean, I was always more handsome than him. I had that. But, you know, when, when we're being measured. And so when um, he, he did most of the preaching and teaching, when I was getting ready for it, our boss, our mutual boss, Nancy Orper, set me down. She said, you're mostly ready, I think, to get up there for the first time. She said, character-wise, I feel good. Talent-wise, I feel good. She said, fashion-wise, maybe you need a little work. I was like, what? Seriously? It's like so bogus, right? At church. And she's like, she's like, I want to affirm your stewardship. The fact that you own the same blue jeans from high school is amazing. And uh, she's like, but if you want to really demonstrate humility, I would like you to ask Jarrett and Jeannie to take you sh clothes shopping. That is the honest truth. So Jarrett and Jeannie took me to the fashion haven of the Northwest Suburbs Woodfield Mall. And we went to J. Crew, and they bought me two outfits. And I rocked that green sweater neck vest for a uh, sweater for about... I don't know, another five years. I was a good steward again. So you can be assured that your pastors are impacting not only lives here, but they, they touch, uh, the, their, their impact is broad. So I'm thankful for you guys. I'm glad to be here. Um, perfect world, our very first conversation wouldn't be such an intense topic, but it is. We're going to talk about race today. And that's um, obviously a topic that society-wide is very charged and very emotional, and there's different perspectives on it. And Honestly, for as divisive it is in society, I think by almost any measure that you look at, it's even more divisive than the church. Um, the church has really has been historically in the United States ripped across the lines of race, and by almost any measure you look at, it's not much different today. And so I think it's important outside of church that we know how to talk about race, but there should be nobody who knows how to talk about race better than people who follow Jesus, because um, it's a deeply and profoundly biblical issue, and uh, unfortunately, we just don't always know how to think about it and process it biblically. And so, it's an enormous subject matter. I'm obviously not going to try to tackle all of it, but there's one particular lens where I'd like for us to begin to look at it today and kind of think through it biblically, and it's around this word identity. Will you say that word with me? Identity. identity. Uh, we're going to really try to look at race through the lens of identity, how it shapes who a person is becoming. And so we'll get to the intense part of the race in a bit. Uh, I want to kind of define terms a little bit because identity is not an unfamiliar word. I think most of us would hear that and have some sense of it, but it actually is a pretty deep word. Uh, when I wrote my book, Wide Awake, that was looking at the intersection of race and identity, you know, I kept asking, what should I read, you know, both in broader society and Christian circles identity and I mean, it's just book after book after book. After book. So much stuff has been written on identity, right? So I, I only got through a fraction of it, but uh, I think it's safe, to, if we look at it from a macro level, there's two kind of driving questions that form this idea of identity that, you know, most would agree are questions that we all ask of ourselves as we grow up and kind of understand who we are based on that. So can we do the repeat thing again with me? These two questions, these are, these are generally agreed upon two big questions that form identity, two basic questions, but repeat these with me. Who am I? Who am I? How do I fit in the world? Who am I and how do I fit in the world? These really are the two dominant questions that inform our sense of who we are and who we're becoming, right? So um, when you're young, you know, child, adolescent, you're not actively asking those yet. That's more people telling you who you are and how you fit in the world. You pick up those cues from the adults that are in your lives. It's really in the junior high and high school days where you start to actively ask those questions for yourself. All right, so one of the fun questions that would be theoretically, I'd love to do is break us up into circles and go to high school years, because that's when it really starts to become for, first and foremost, and say, what are the outfits you started trying on 
as you answer those questions. Who am I and how do I fit in the world? Because right? that's part of teenage years as you're trying on different ones, right? Um, I can think back to my high school years and remember you know, trying on the like smart intellectual cool geek one and that didn't work because I wasn't smart enough and I remember trying on the jock one and that lasted about a day because I wasn't athletic enough. Uh, we've already established my fashion prowess so it wasn't going to be that. Um, so as I was trying on outfits of who am I and how do I fit in the world, the game changer for me, I doubt it's the game changer for you, but the game changer for me was when boy bands entered onto the scene. Um, it finally gave me a reference point where you could not be an athlete, not be the super smart guy, but you could have somebody who's cool. And so you probably have to be a little bit old and way cool to remember this, but they went by an acronym. I'm sure none of you have heard it, but they were called NKOTB. Oh, yay. Some of you know. Yes. Uh, so let me introduce you, if you don't know New Kids on the Lights. Let me introduce you to Jordan Knight. Uh, this is Jordan, uh, the one with the cool uh, gun thing going on right here. Um, so cool. Yeah, um, he was beyond cool. The girls just loved him in my high school. I was like, I can do that. I can, I can do that. And ne next picture, this is, the, if, you wanna, if you want a window into my high school years, now I didn't try the vest. I didn't have big enough guns yet. I do now, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't then. Um, but the hair in the air, all right, so start with the hair. You think his hair is big? Nothing compared to mine. I had so much Aquanet on a daily basis. My, I had a wall of bangs that the girls just, I think, swooned over, even if they didn't tell me, but I think they did. And, um, and then he had the cool silver hoop earrings, and I'm like, I'm not exaggerating. I was trying to be cool. Who am I? How do I fit in the world? I said, I got to make the earring thing work. Now, my dad was a pastor, very conservative. There was no way I was going to let me pierce my ears. So what I would do, you know, if you pierce your ear by yourself, it closes back up at the end of the day. Do you know this? Um, so on a daily basis, I would pierce my ear on the way to school with an ice cube. Oh, that's not true. It doesn't help. But I would use an ice cube, jam it through, and for a day, I would be Jordan Knight at school. And <laughs> This was my sincere efforts to answer the identity question. Who am I? How do I fit in the world? Jordan Knight was my reference points, all right? Um, and now, I think we'd all have our own funny stories of that, and it's silly, but it's real. It's getting to this idea of it's inside of us. We need to know who we are. We're trying to figure out who we are, right? And so this, I want to start with what's kind of the main thesis of this today, and then from there we'll kind of look at race. My main thesis today that I'd like us to consider, from a biblical perspective, when we think about identity, um, not only does God care a lot about that, how we answer those questions, who am I, how to fit in the world, but I think it was even deeper. I think it's safe to say from a biblical perspective that when it comes to these questions of identity, when it comes to these questions of who am I and how do I fit in the world, there are two supernatural forces contesting to be the primary voice in your identity development journey. It goes past even the natural questions. There are two supernatural forces seriously contesting to be the primary voice that shapes who you are. Right now, as those who are following Jesus know that the primary and most important voice is that of God. Right? We quote these verses almost like they're trite, but you know, we'll see it at a football game. But when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, uh, the Bible writers didn't see that as a cute memory verse. They saw that that's what the whole thing is about, that there is this supernatural love that if we could come in a deeper and deeper contact with us would, would change everything. Right? This love, and I think the supernatural part of this is important because sometimes it's like, oh yeah, love, 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 right, and they move on. But most of us don't understand love from a supernatural perspective. Right? When you watch the Apostle Paul talk about supernatural love, he does this in multiple places, but he like searches for better words. Right? He's like, I'm praying that you'd get this love, like how high it is. You don't understand how deep it is, how long it is, how wide it is. Like y'all don't understand. Right? He's like pleading with people to see beyond the natural limitations of this thing called love that is found in God. And that is meant to be the defining reality of who we're coming to know ourselves. 
And then what I'll get to in a minute um, is how race is used by evil, but the Bible consistently, uncomfortably portrays there being supernatural evil that competes to be a shaping voice in our sense of identity. All right, the Bible calls it Satan, calls it devil, the accuser, the liar. Um, in John 10, 10, um, Jesus just, he would regularly do stuff like this, right? God's intention that you would have abundance of life in me, but there's a thief who tries to steal, kill, and destroy. All right, God is a farmer who drops seeds in the soil, but there's a bird who comes and tries to get it, right? There's this sense that identity is being formed in this kind of contest between two supernatural forces. And I think that's just an important idea to understand in general about Christianity. And then I think it sets us up to understand race in a deeper way. You track it with me so far? So I want to kind of go positive, negative. Like I want to start with the supernatural love of God and how that's supposed to shape our identity. And that's the most important thing. I don't want to, I don't want to detract away from that at all when we talk about how serious race is, but it's important we're clear on that. So the passage I want to use for that, and if you've got a Bible or your phone or an electronic device or whatever, you can uh, open up to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll have it on the screen here if you don't. But in uh, all four gospel accounts, you know, after you get past the, um, the birth of Jesus, there's just a little tiny bit about his early upbringing. Really, the climactic moment uh, that starts off Jesus' ministry in all four accounts is the baptism experience that he has. And um, this is an account, I'm a pastor's kid, as I said, I've known this since I was a kid, uh, but um, it's really only been the last decade or so that, that, that this has come to, uh, this is actually my favorite passage of the Bible now because I think it speaks to who we are and who we, how we need to think about identity. So let me read Matthew's version. This is in all four gospel accounts. Let me read Matthew's version of the baptism of Jesus. Matthew says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Now, these next couple of verses, I want you, what, whatever degree of artistic, creative side you have, and you try to like picture with your imagination the profound nature of this scene. All right, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he comes up out of the water. Right? At that moment, pictures, the heavens were opened. And Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a love, like a dove and alighting on him. That's the word my version uses. It's not even an English word. They had to find a word to try to describe the power of what's happening. It's alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, when I was growing up and hearing this, I disassociated from because I thought, well, that's Jesus. Of course he's going to hear something incredible like that. Of course for him, the answer to who am I and how do I fit in the world would be answered like this. But I didn't think that applied to us. I didn't think it applied to me. And it was a, a pair of revelations that became very important for my own identity journey, realizing, for one, that's the whole thing Jesus came here to do. When he died and resurrected through faith in him, we occupy the same place. That's what faith is, is to courage and the ability to know that we can hear these same words over us. But even at a practical level, it just dawned on me one day, you know what? It makes all the difference where in the chronology this happens. If this would have happened at the end of Jesus' life, that would be what we'd expect, right? That he does all these good things for God, and at the end, God says, well done. I set out this assignment for you, and you did it as I asked. Well done. You're loved now, right? But where does this happen? It's at the very beginning. Jesus hasn't done a thing ministry-wise yet. 
He hasn't healed anybody, hasn't preached a sermon, hasn't invested in disciples yet. This is before anything begins. And it was so important, not only as a model, which I think it's at least that, I think in human form Jesus even needed this. I think he needed to regularly reroute his identity in who he was as a son of God. So when Jesus steps into this baptismal moment and the Spirit of God comes upon him and he can hear it, he can feel it, and the voice of the Father comes over him, like think of each part that he said. He says first, God says, this is my son. When you think about identity, when you think about what God wants for you when you answer those questions, who am I and how do I fit in the world, that's part one. God wants you to think, you are my son. You are my daughter. That is who you are and how you fit in the world. He says, this is my son whom I love. If you want to know how to answer those questions from God's perspective, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're the beloved. That's who you are. That's what God's intention is, is that you would know that in deeper and deeper and deeper ways. And then finally, the one that I think in some ways is the hardest to believe of all, God says, in you I take pleasure. Some virgins say delight. In you I take delight. Right? It's already a stretch of the faith imagination to believe that God can forgive us for our sins. That's a whole nother stretch of the imagination, isn't it, to believe I'm delighted in? Can you believe that, can you believe that when God looks at you, he delights in you? Now, I don't think most of us actually functionally believe that, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Right? And so much of what God's intention for us is that we would move deeper and deeper into that truth. And what I'm saying now is the most important part of that. And if that's new to you, I hope, I hope that that rest restlessness that you're feeling from the Spirit will cause you to say, wow, that's who God sees me as. That's what God invites me into, right? If you would have asked Jesus that question of identity, who am I and how do I fit, how do I fit in the world? This is how he would have answered. I'm God's son. I'm God's beloved. I'm the one that God takes pleasure and delight in. You tracking with me? All right, so this is, this is the starting point. This is the ending point. This is where we want to always get back to when we're thinking through identity. All right, so can we park that for a minute and now have the kind of more charged kind of conversation a minute on race? Are you all ready for that for, for a minute? All right, now, if we're, and I'll connect this back. Um, first thing I think we have to do, terminology gets very tricky around this, so let's define some terms. For speed's sake, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to draw a line down the middle and say there's two sets of words that we tend to use interchangeably on this topic that I don't think we should. Um, they mean different things, and we should separate them. So on this side, if you can kind of track with this, I'm going to put, like, the words ethnicity, nationality, even culture often, I'm going to put these on the side of things God has created for good. All right, in a minute, we're going to move over here and say, then there's race, things that are created for absolute terrible purposes. And it's important to see the difference in these. So let's just, just for a second, ethnicity, nationality, even the culture that comes from that, those are from God, right? Um, Acts 17, when Paul's talking at Mars Hill, he says, all the nations, all the nationalities are in the world are from and through Jesus Christ. That's the Christian perspective on this. They're reflective of Jesus Christ. They will be redeemed and seen in heaven. Revelation 7 9, we see that there will be multi-languages, multi-cultures in heaven. It's not a mistake. We're not supposed to minimize these national and ethnic differences, all right? Different conversation, something that's really wonderful. It's its own thing. What people don't always especially those of us who kind of grew up in dominant culture spaces, what we don't always realize is race is something very different than that. Race is not created by God. Most people who study race say it's not very old. It's four or 500 years old. It's created by people. And here's the first part to understand. Race has no redeeming value to it. The very origins of this thing we called race were 100% evil and diabolical. They were created 
to, so quick working definition, race takes perceived biological differences and creates racial categories off of them. And the purpose of race, the purpose of these categories was to basically justify genocide of indigenous people and most clearly probably why race was created was to justify slavery. All right, so let's stay here for a second. You've got a book out in your resource center by Brian Stevenson. I don't know if you guys know that name yet. He's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. If you all ever get him to, to the Voices series one year, I'm going to cancel my church and bring him too. I mean, he's an amazing, amazing um, Christ follower and believer and activist. Um, he's a lawyer. He represents folks on death row. He just started the first ever lynching museum. They're going to put a monument up in every place where lynching happened in our country and hasn't been talked about. I mean, he is doing some serious work. Um, I, he's got such a precise way of defining the kind of sin of race. So repeat this phrase with me, if you will, because it's a really important term. He calls it, uh, I'll say it in two parts, say it with me, the narrative, the narrative. of racial difference. All right, this is how he bottom lines why race is so serious. He says, when we created these categories of race based on perceived physiological differences, it's not even that we create the categories, it's problematic, but it's not the creation of the categories that's most problematic. What is most problematic is we created a story about those categories, and the story says where you fall on the racial hierarchy reflects how human you are. The differences are associated with human value, right? So we created these very artificial things, but then we said, we said there's this racial category, and whiteness was always, since its origins, has been put at the top. You know, when, when European folks came here, they weren't called white at first. This is a category that was created. Whiteness was put at the top, and blackness was put at the bottom. That's a, I hate saying that, I especially hate saying it as a white male, but it's what's true. All right, so here's how Stevenson pushes it, especially when he's in Christian circles. He'll say, you know, he'll be with, I've seen him do this with white lawyers, I've also seen him do it with white Christian ministers. And so they'll often say, well, come on, slavery, you know, that was hundreds of years ago, my ancestor didn't own slaves, I certainly don't, why are we still talking about this? He'll say, let's go back to this narrative of racial difference. And this is especially in white pastor circles. It gets uncomfortable, but it's good. He says, let's do an exercise. He says, let's ask a basic but important question. How is it that in mass, white Christians got fully behind slavery when it came to this country? Right? I mean, there was always the exception, the abolitionists, but in mass, white Christians got behind slavery, and slavery could not have existed. This is true. Slavery could not have existed if white Christians didn't get behind it. He says, now, those are good white Christian people going to church, reading the same Bible as us. Every How did they own human beings? He said, let's push it even further. Slavery couldn't have existed without white theologians creating theology for it. How did that happen? How did they look at the same Bible as us and own human beings for so long? So there's only one explanation. It's the narrative of racial difference. There was the truth of Scripture and the lie of race. And the lie of race says human value is not based on how God made people. It's based on this racial hierarchy. And that narrative, that lie was so powerful and so largely non-confronted that the lie was believed more than the truth of Scripture. And here's the lie that white Christians bought into, that black people are fundamentally less human than white people. This is not a matter of opinion. This is codified in everything we have in our country's history. In the Constitution, when they were wrestling over taxation, black people are called three-fifths human in our Constitution. All right, that is as clear of a definition as you can get of the narrative of racial difference. White, five-fifths human, black three-fifths human, and then as other Asian immigrants and Latino immigrants and mixed race kind of stuff, you know, th they were kind of forced to be defined within this racial hierarchy. 
And Stevenson says, if we can't understand the power of that lie, we will never understand why race still has a chokehold on our whole country. And I would add, why race still has a chokehold on our church. Because we've not learned to detect this lie. So yes, did slavery get overturned in 1865? It did, absolutely. And thank God it did, right? But he says, if you've got a structure built on top of soil that has in the soil the poison of the narrative of racial difference, what happens when you pull up a weed but leave a root there? Right? The lie is as present, the set of lies that undergirds this horrible system called race is as present today as it's ever been. And now let me connect this back to the identity, right? So there's a lot of implications for that because eventually we need to understand that lie good enough that we can go into social structures where we can go and look at how that lie is shaped, the, the, how the lie is in the soil of schools that are being led, how the lie is in the soil of the medical field, how the, the lie is in the soil of how real estate continues to happen. Th those are advanced conversations that need to happen as well. I want to just look at identity. Now, I want to look at the spiritual part, right? Because I'm telling you the main idea for today is that there are two supernatural forces vying to influence our identity journey, right? So we've already talked about the one that needs to be what's winning, the truth that's found in God. It can sound spooky when you talk about supernatural evil, it can, you can kind of go to this almost like poltergeist kind of place where it's like you're imagining kind of angelic beings duking it out, you know, with weapons. But in the Bible, there's really one singular word that's used over and over for how Satan works, for how devil works. In fact, it's what the word devil really means. And it's the word lie. That's how evil works is through lies. It starts at the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, you've got a God who says everything is yours, Adam and Eve. There's just one thing you can't do. Right? Now, how, how do you convince somebody who has everything to disobey God? I mean, lies are the only chance you have. It's not like the devil created an alternative reality, right? All he did was poison them just enough. It just took just enough lies to get them to question God's goodness, right? And you get this throughout Scripture. The devil itself, the word diabolos means divider or liar, deceiver. Um, uh, um, John 8, 44, it's a passage that's become very, John 8, the whole thing, but 8, 44 in particular has become very influential for me. Um, it's the most straightforward term that Jesus gives for the devil, and he's talking to the Pharisees. And he says the same thing, but he says it three times. He says, the devil's a liar. The native tongue of the devil is that of lies. And then to top it off, he says, the devil's the father of lies. And here's what's scary to me. He's talking to Pharisees, right? Pharisees, they can get a bad rap, but though they missed the gospel truth of Jesus, it didn't change the fact they were super devout <laughs> religious people. Right? I mean, they followed the Mosaic law to the T, right? So he's talking to people who are not questioning God. They're just questioning Jesus as his son, right? And Jesus looks at this group of Pharisees. He says, devil's a liar. Native tongue is that of lies. He's the father of lies. He says, and you all belong right now to the father of lies. John 8, 44, you can go look at that. And what he's saying, it's not a permanent thing, but he's saying there's two clouds you can live under, the father of truth or the father of lies. And you can actually know a whole lot of scripture and be a devoted religious person and still live under the cloud of lies. Now, I want to come back to the baptism of Jesus. This is, I told you, my favorite passage. It's how I think of Christianity because um, every morning I pray that prayer. I say, God, I know your intention for me is to live from this place of I'm your son, I'm your beloved, you take delight in me. But I remember what happened to Jesus next in all four accounts. Jesus gets baptized, and you know what happens in all four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You know what happens next to Jesus after that, very next thing? He goes into the wilderness to fight against who? The devil, right? 
And there's these three temptations the devil does. They're each unique. They're worth reflecting on the uniqueness as well. But for the purposes of this message, I want to reflect on what's similar about them. Jesus just heard that he's the son of God, right? That's what happened in the baptism. Then he goes to fight the devil in the desert, and the devil starts the temptation with by saying, if you are the son of God. If you really are the son of God, then prove it. Turn that stone into bread. If you are the son of God, prove it. Jump off this pinnacle. But at the fundamental level, what was, it, what was the lie? What was, the diabolos means divide. What was he trying to divide Jesus from? The blessing he just heard, that he is the son of God, right? That is the Christian life right there. The voice of God saying, here's who I want you to live from, and a very real presence, a very real thief that's trying to separate us from that. And while race is not the only lie, there are lots of lies that can separate us from identity in Christ. I think I can make a real strong case that race has, for, since the beginning of our country, been the boldest and strongest lie that has shaped our society, and it today is still the most fierce lie that is out there constantly being communicated, sometimes on purpose, often accidentally by people. And this lie of human value and human worth, of this sense of a racial hierarchy, continues to be communicated. I just, this is just one of the everyday kind of examples. I think when you begin to see this, you can see it everywhere. But, you know, we've got folks in our community of every racial background, and I'm glad for that, that are all trying to see this and dismantle this and follow Jesus. But uh, we've got a white couple, white family that's really serious about this, a number of white folks who are. And so um, their oldest daughter, who's eight now, nine now, eight last year when this happened, uh, she's notoriously difficult to win over, as, you know, many kids are, so all the adults, you know, get creepy, weird adults trying to win her over so that, you know, that, that she'll like them. But uh, one, of our, one of our pastors, uh, Brandon, who's an African-American guy, um, finally won her over, and she, like, liked him. And so we, th th we were crossing the street from our church to a playground across the street, and she let him hold his hand, which is, like, this big deal. So they're holding the hand across the street, and she looks up to him with a sweet little smile, and she says, you're not going to shoot me, right, Mr. Brandon? All right, you can imagine how stunning a question, like, right, these aren't straight, right? And it, she's eight, right? He goes, what? Why would you even ask something like that? She's like, well, all black people carry guns, right? He's like, no, why would you say that? She's like, well, black people hurt other people, right? He's like, you know me. She's like, I know I know you. That's why I'm saying it. I don't have to worry about you, right? And so if you'd hear a story like that out of context, you'd think, oh, maybe that's bad white people, right? These are uninformed white people that are kind of, you know, you know closet KKK people, right? No, this is, this is a white family who cares deeply about this stuff. And yet by eight years old, their daughter has already internalized the lies to such a point that, boy, you leave that unchecked for another 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, right? The work gets harder and harder to get back into the full truth. And that, I think, is in so many ways the starting point for those of us to understand before we try to go out into the world and be good white people or good whatever you, we have to realize there is a fierce spiritual battle happening and God is trying to get every child to understand who they are and to live deeply from this love. But race is one of the primary tools that the evil one uses to distort that. And if you're on the non-white side, depending on how far down you go down the hierarchy, you have heard messages. It's just inevitable because you, if you've been here, you have heard messages that say you're less than, that you have to prove yourself, that you have to demonstrate you're as human as other people are. If you're white, you've heard messages that you're inherently superior to other people. Now, I don't think anybody in here would say, I believe that. It doesn't change the fact that we're surrounded by those lies. We're surrounded by them. And it's not enough to just kind of make these generic denouncements of that. We have to say, there's a battle happening. And it's a battle for my heart and soul, 
right? And the Spirit of God is trying to illuminate this. He's trying to, trying to help me live from this alighted place of who I am and to see others as that. But if we're unaware of the battle that's happening, we're just not very well positioned to really get free from it ourselves or to participate in the kinds of things that have to happen to see all of us free from this. So I'm thankful I got to be here on a Sunday where you guys are receiving the gift of communion. It's always my favorite Sunday at our church when we do that because communion is that time where Jesus takes these kinds of words where he says, the things that God intends for you, this love, this freedom, this liberation, this transformation, and you remember that it doesn't come from your own efforts. It doesn't come from your own achievement. It doesn't come, you're not disqualified for it because of sin, and you can't earn it through your good deeds. It's through what I've done in this death and resurrection, right? And so as we get ready to receive of this gift, I'd like to give you just maybe a couple cues for kind of preparing your own hearts and minds for this, because I think communion is important. When we, when we receive this gift, we're coming in contact in a sacred way with the Spirit of God. And so if we can just take this idea that I've tried to develop here, that identity is an answer to these questions, who am I? How do I fit in the world? Right? And second part, that there's two supernatural forces vying to be the formative voice within that, God and evil. Um, we'll look kind of at the evil one first, and then God second. Let's let, let's just spend a moment thinking through this lens of kind of getting ready for communion. If there are these lies that evil has conspired with, that human worth doesn't come from who we are in God, it comes instead from where we fall in the racial hierarchy, I think that is something, to, to the best that we can see that, we should come with that to the Lord's table and ask God to free us from that. Again, some of us, that, that's pain and sorrow of having to have had fought against this narrative that says I'm less than, that my, my humanity is not going to be defined by those who would have an unbiblical view of where human worth comes from. All right, and then for some of us, I'll put myself here, you know, I, I grew up in a family that condemned racism. It was never an overt kind of a thing, um, but it doesn't change. In fact, I grew up in a society that told me because I'm white and because I'm a male, I'm better than. Right? And I like how my friend Julian DeShazer, who's a pastor on the South Side, defines privilege. Privilege can be another one of those charged words. He defines privilege simply as this. Privilege is the ability to walk away. Privilege is the ability to not care. Privilege is the ability to have a fight happening out there, but because it doesn't affect me in ways I see, I can take it or leave it. Right? That's whenever I come to the Lord's table here, I'm not repenting of overtly racist actions. I don't think I've done those in years. But what I'm repenting of is... I've been breathing in this air. I've been breathing in these lies, and I've not been even thinking about the way it's shaping me or shaping the way I view others. So I bring that in a spirit of confession, not for bad deeds, but for bad air, for a sickness that I need to be cured of. And so as we think about the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, I think race is one of the things we have got to be able to see how it continues to be pushed, advanced, these lies of human value continue to be advanced in society. And then I think we always want to come back, you know, uh, to the source of where all transformation comes from, and that is the love of God, right? I want to, I want to propose, there, the Bible says in a lot of different ways, but I want to propose Matthew 3 as one of the passages you take with you to this cup and this bread today, that you would ask the Spirit of God to alight in you to illuminate in you the same way the Spirit of God illuminated to Jesus in that moment. That you would be able to hear the voice from heavens say, 
this is my daughter. This is my son. This is my beloved. This is the one I take pleasure in. Peter Scazzaro is a pastor, was a pastor in New York for a long time and wrote a lot of books on emotionally healthy spirituality, stuff that's been very formative for me. But he uses this simple image, but I want to use this as our kind of going into communion image. He talks about farming in the early 1900s and how, um, especially in the Midwest and where you have these kind of just large kind of flat areas, that there would be these huge blizzards that would come along every once in a while. And so the farmers would have the right spirit. They'd want to kind of charge out of the farm and catch any animals that were stray or things that needed to be brought in, you know, kind of right at you. But when the blizzard would come, it would get so intense and they would have a term, they'd call it a whiteout. And a whiteout would be when you couldn't even see anything around you. So there are all these stories of farmers who would only be a few feet away from the barn, but they couldn't find their way back in because they got caught in this storm. And so there was this simple but revolutionary kind of idea that one of them had of, wait, before I go out to search for something, I'm going to tie a rope around my waist and I'm going to find the strongest, most stable, most foundational thing inside of this farm. I'm going to tie the other end of the rope there. And then when I go out and the storm comes, as it inevitably will, and there's all this confusion and the disorientation comes, as it always will, you go, oh, wait, I'm not alone out here. Right? I've got this rope on me. I just need to pull it back to this firm foundation that it's tied to. And I think this is true outside of race too, but it's really critical for race. While I'm very much part of conversations outside of the church and race too, the church has a totally different perspective because the starting point and ending point must be the blessing of God. These words that say, you're my daughter, you're my son, I love you, I take pleasure in you. That's where we get rooted. That's how we go out. And, and anywhere, and I mean anywhere, this is what I think being in tune with Jesus means, anywhere we see the humanity of human beings under assault, we say, we know our Jesus cares deeply about that. So I'm rooted in it in myself, and now I go out into that scary world, that disorienting world, saying anything that puts the humanity of God's children at stake, I'm against that, because Jesus is against that, because that's what it means when he's bringing his kingdom. And so communion is a time to receive forgiveness. It's a time to receive a blessing. It's a time to remember who we are. And then it's a charge to go back out into the world, carrying this message in deeper and deeper ways of how beloved we are, and then looking for ways in which that same thing is being under assault in our world. And so I'd like to kind of just lead us in a kind of a reflective prayer, getting ready for communion, and then um, the um, host will come up and distribute. So will you join me in prayer as we just take a moment to get our hearts and minds ready for this? Oh, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on this place. When we picture God's very self, but in human form, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in human form, he needed this. He needed the Spirit of God to come upon him to reveal what was true about a God who speaks the words of life into us. So God, I pray that every person who is in this room and every person who is listening will just allow the simplicity and yet absolute profoundness of the words of the Father. Speak over them, anoint their heads. This is my daughter. This is my son. God, let us sit in the magnitude of that reality that through what you've done for us, we are your children. 
May the words of the Father come over us. May the Spirit light them up for us. We are your beloved. We don't need to go on the search for it anywhere else. That will always come up short. We don't have to be defined by those who said we're not lovable. Those wounds are real. But your voice is the healing agent. I think of the words of Psalm 32 in David's confession. And he says, after he confesses, he trusts that the Lord sings songs of delight and deliverance over him. God, may we hear the words of the Father that says, I take pleasure in you. Oh, how we need to hear those words. Ground us in that, God. Transform us. Peel away those parts that can't hear it or won't hear it. Allow us to swim deeply. Allow us to reflect as the Apostle Paul did on how wide and how long, how deep is the love of God. We thank you. May we not ever treat this as some kind of routine thing. We remember that it's God's very self manifesting your love for us when we take this. We pray this in your name, amen.